0: This is the Political Monitor podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. My name's Clay Wirestone. I'm a writer and editor here. In today's show, we talk about the Paris terror attacks and their political implications. We're not doing any music today. We're just going to go straight into the show. So we'll start today's podcast just by noting the uh, terror attacks on Paris of last Friday. They're connected at this point to the Islamic State militant group. There are at least 129 dead, so several hundred more injured. It's an ongoing story now in France. They're tracking down various plotters and um, the attacks have had enormous political uh, implications here at, at home too. But obviously our, our thoughts are with all of those in France and those around the world who are who are dealing with this threat. So that's kind of the non-funny, kind of non-amusing beginning to the podcast. We generally have a good time here with with politics, but sometimes obviously politics intersect with the real world in in difficult ways. So joining us today to talk about this and hopefully having maybe a little bit uh, fun later, at least our John Van Fleet, our politics editor. Hi, John Hello, Clay. and Ella Nilsson, one of our reporters. Hi, Ella. Hi, Clay. So, Clay, yes. Uh,
1: as we record this, I believe the, the news of the day is that the alleged mastermind of the attacks has been killed, has been shot, and killed. So, pretty much all of, uh, I believe, all of the culprits have been identified. Of course, there are other threads that go f- farther afield, but the person responsible for this attack, uh, I believe, has, has been killed by French authorities. And in tomorrow's paper, Nick Reed has a story about stepped up operations of members of the New Hampshire National Guard who are fighting ISIS forces right now.
0: You know, what happens when you have a, a terrorist attack, certainly, or any kind of giant news event like this, you know, it trickles down kind of to all levels of politics and political reaction, especially given that we have a presidential primary in the offing you've got a lot of other races too um, and it came to New Hampshire uh, at least in the form of some some statements by Governor Maggie Hassan about Syrian refugees so John could we let's let's start with that sure
1: so on sun comes up Monday number of governors around the nation, were quick to say, I don't want any Syrian refugees coming to my state. And more and more governors started to say that. And they were all Republican. And then Maggie Hassan comes out and puts out a statement that doesn't say the same thing that those other governors said. She said that she thought the federal government should halt the arrival of Syrian refugees until the process could be thoroughly vetted to ensure that the people who were coming here were of no threat to the people of New Hampshire and the people of the United States. Mm-hmm. So it's a very carefully crafted Hassan-like statement where she is not taking a strong position one way or the other, and she's urging caution. She's urging patience. She's urging further... um. Investigation. Well, right? this, this but, this, but she got bit a little bit here by the national media because she got pulled in into that gravitational pull of the other Republican governors, and so a number of national media outlets then started to say, "Well, there's these 27 governors that are all Republicans, and Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire, the only Democrat who's calling for uh, to block." Syrian refugees from their state. Right. And that's not what she said, but she got lumped into that, that group uh, in, through the national headlines.
0: Yeah. Uh, she, you know, we ran a, an op-ed from her in the, the forum section, and I think this is the, the paragraph where she would, you know, she would say that, that she would say explains her thinking Quote, that is why I have ha- called for the federal government to temporarily halt acceptance of refugees from Syria until intelligence and defense officials can assure that the process for vetting all refugees is as strong as possible to ensure public safety. And then in the next paragraph, this should be a temporary measure. So, And we published that op-ed the day after we published an editorial
1: that criticized Hassan. I believe the first line of that editorial was, we do not stand with Maggie Hassan, So she faced a lot of criticism for her stance because uh, many of the refugee advocates uh, have said that these are some of the most vetted people that are allowed into the country there's so many easier ways to get into the United States to cause trouble to say that these people because they are of a certain nationality are going are going to be terrorists when they get here doesn't uh, doesn't recognize the facts there the uh, the 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 national spokesman for refugees if you will said that there has never been a a refugee in the united states that has committed a terrorist attack here right well
0: and there's a lot of there's definitely misinformation going around too for example carly fiorina the republican presidential uh, candidate said something along the lines of the vast majority of these refugees are young men you know working age men um at at a campaign stop here in the state and that that was a reason why they they shouldn't come to the united states um, you know that's been that's been examined before, and it's it's just not true. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees says that of the you know of the Syrian refugees that are currently in the pipeline, actually a majority of them are women. You know, Clay. Yes, John.
1: That sounds like a job for Politifact.
0: You know, and I I actually think that the that the story in question cited um, another fact-checking site.
1: It did. Yeah. Our good friends over at. Factcheck.org.
0: Ah, yes. Well, you know, we're all in pursuit of truth, Jeff. We are. Yes. So, um, uh, and then, of course, the the other issue with the the Syrian refugees in the United States is that, you know, ultimately, we're looking at potentially a a pretty small number. I mean, I think President Obama was calling for maybe 10,000 to be resettled this next year. And when you consider like the, the number of people who live in the United States and the number of people who, who immigrate here for all sorts of other reasons, that's, that's a drop in the bucket really.
2: There was a good amount of confusion over the number of refugees versus the number of Syrian refugees because the, the uh, I believe it was the Manchester uh, Board of Aldermen had a meeting and um, the union leader had reported the Manchester police chief saying that uh, up to 500 Syrian refugees could be coming to New Hampshire. Um, he later clarified that <laughs> vehemently, saying it was 500 refugees total coming to New Hampshire. Um, so there was is, some confusion there.
0: And this is one of the things that happens when people become very inflamed by current events or very concerned: is that you know a lot of facts, a lot of assertions get kind of thrown into the air, and kind of you know it can be very easy to justify an alarmist position. You know, just because of the, the, the tenor of, of the times. Uh, I know even just today, the U.S. House of Representatives passed by a substantial margin uh, a bill that would require extra vetting of refugees from Syria and Iraq. And this is of note because actually it passed with, uh, you know, pretty much all the Republicans and around 40 Democrats as well, meaning that it would be a veto proof majority in the House. The question is whether it gets through the Senate.
2: And I believe that uh, Annie Custer was one of the Democrats who voted for it.
0: The, um, the, the reporting that I saw out of uh, the U.S. House suggested that uh, even though the Obama administration had made kind of a last-ditch effort to defend its policies on, on, uh, on uh, refugees, uh, the, rep- the, the representatives simply didn't find it particularly persuasive, and they thought that the bill was relatively modest in terms of what it was asking. So that that will be something that we keep watching, you know, play out. Uh, You know, the other aspect, though, John, with Maggie Hassan, of course, is that she is also a Senate candidate
1: now. Yes, you're right. Uh, I left out the obvious here. It's interesting, too, because, you know, for the first time, here's Maggie Hassan. Maybe not the very first time, but here's Maggie Hassan. She's talking about federal policy as opposed to New Hampshire policy. Why would she do that? Well, it just so happens that she's running for the U.S. Senate. And so now she's beginning to speak in, in more senatorial ways than mm-hmm. she would necessarily if she's just Governor Maggie Hassan. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and her and her op-ed that again published in the forum included a great deal about you know strategies to fight ISIS, you know the best way to go after the terrorists. Not exactly the kind of subject matter that you'd expect a sitting governor to tackle mm-hmm. in a in a piece like that. But she she did go over it at length.
2: She also did you know with this decision uh, or with this this tack that she's taking, did side with her Senate opponent, Senator Kelly Ayotte.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, but I mean, it's also something that's very much in line with American public opinion. I think mm-hmm. the, there was a poll that was done within the last couple of days that showed that a, an outright majority, maybe 53% of those surveyed, uh, did not want any uh, Syrian refugees coming to the United States. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely, an, an, coming down on the other side would be a, a less, po- perhaps a less popular stance. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ella, kind of following along the, uh, you know, kind of the way that these attacks have played out politically, um, you did a story um, earlier this week, kind of talking about how this was affecting the presidential race.
2: Yes, um, so I talked to uh, a couple of people, including uh, Professor Brendan Nyhan, who works at Dartmouth College, who had just written a column in the New York Times um, about, it was his belief that, you know, while the the Paris attacks were certainly devastating um, and were were certainly forcing uh, the candidates more urgently to outline their foreign policy plans, um, that he did not believe that this would significantly change the trajectory of the race. Um, and when I talked to him about that, he explained what he meant by it is that, you know, he's still very much of the opinion that, that uh, Hillary Clinton will probably ultimately be the Democratic nominee. And um, she has the, you know, the arguably the uh, most foreign policy experience on either side of the field, serving as former secretary of state, um, among other things. Um, and so, but, but he had kind of an interesting argument when you get to, uh, the, the general election and that being that Clinton's, uh, depth of, of knowledge and experience isn't necessarily a huge help to her when it comes to the general election. Um, as long as in his words, she's facing a quote, competent Republican challenger, um, So basically somebody, uh, as he saw it, who is not Ben Carson or Donald Trump. Um, And he just said that, you know, even though she has this this depth of experience, you know, she's also made a lot of uh, decisions as secretary of state that the Republicans can go after her for. Um, So it's, you know, and and he did uh, point out that Clinton's husband, uh, former President Bill Clinton, was a fairly inexperienced governor of Arkansas when he ran for president in 1992, um, and was up against some more uh, experienced people in the realm of foreign policy, and still ultimately won the nomination and and uh, the presidency. Um, so that was one of the things that I explored. And I also talked to um, former New Hampshire GOP Chairman Fergus Cullen um, about the Republican field, because... Um, you know, on Saturday night, uh, the, the the day after the Paris attacks, the um, Democrats had their debate and sort of outlined their foreign policy. And then all week, Republicans have kind of been outlining some of the things that they would do uh, to, I think, varying levels of, of hawkishness. Um, Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, you know, both said that, that they would sort of, you know, want to declare war on ISIS. And, and um, there's been a lot of barbs that the Republican candidates have been trading over, um, you know, and, and kind of attacking Democrats to, you know, say, daring Democrats to say, where well, you need to fight radical Islam. Um, and Democrats have been more hesitant to put the word Islam in there and have instead been using the term jihadis. Um, I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, hesitancy on the Democrat side. They don't want to lump Islam in with with uh, with ISIS. Um, but it has been interesting to see people's reactions, and I think um, most notably, uh, still Republican front runner Donald Trump uh, has outlined a plan that would include. Um, Making Muslims have ID cards designating themselves, designating their religion, which has drawn a lot of uh, well, outcries from he's people.
0: He's made a lot of different suggestions, yes. too, such as the possibility of closing mosques that were right. found to be fomenting radical Islam um, Although, of course, in, if you're looking at France, there's no evidence that there were actually any French mosques that were involved in indoctrinating people. That's not actually how ISIS works. It mm-hmm. tends to radicalize people through through you know YouTube videos and the like. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, I think it's actually remarkable to see the difference between the Donald Trump and the Ben Carson campaigns on this because it's it's difficult to see anything. But to, to call the Carson campaign reaction to this anything but disastrous, I mean, the, the New York Times most notably ran a story um, earlier this week, I, uh, 17th, so Monday, I isn't that right? In which his, one of his top foreign uh, affairs advisors said, quote, I mean, on the record, nobody has been able to sit down with him and have him get one iota of intelligent information about the Middle East. And then uh, another uh, close Carson um, aide saying something along the lines of uh, we need to give uh, Carson weekly conference calls about foreign policy so, quote, we can make him smart, unquote. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, regardless of how much or how little Ben Carson understands foreign policy, I mean, I think it's how much or little any candidate really understands foreign policy. I mean, there's people who literally spend entire careers learning about these subjects. it's pretty devastating to have people on your campaign who are actually working for you to say things like that on the record.
1: Mm-hmm. With aides like that, who needs enemies? <laughs> Absolutely. Well,
0: precisely. And and yet, then you look at the you know you look at the opponent you know in kind of that outsider candidate race, someone like Donald Trump, who again and again people have said, you know. This thing, him criticizing John McCain or that thing, him criticizing immigrants, this is going to be what finally bumps him out of the race. And each time what happens is he he dives into the subject, you know, rather than trying to dodge it or rather than trying to, you know, talk it away, he actually engages in it more ferociously. And that's exactly what he did uh, with the ISIS attack, saying, you know, using some profanity, saying we're going to go over and bomb the uh, out of them and uh, just t- striking this very aggressive tone, and you know, that's the Trump campaign. He's channeling the id of what a lot of people feel like. I mean, who doesn't feel that way after a you know a, a terrorist
2: attack or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I I don't think at this point. I mean, I've I've read a couple of pieces today that that have been questioning you know whether this is actually going to hurt Trump. It's in the long guessing game of what is going to be the thing <laughs> that finally hurts Donald Trump. Uh, and a lot of people are saying, I don't think this is it.
0: <laughs> There's actually have been polls now that, that s- conducted subsequent to the attacks after after the attacks and the show Trump, you know, gaining ground yeah. again rather than losing it. So.
2: I do think sort of going back to my conversation with uh, Professor Nyhan over at Dartmouth College, I do think that, that, as you had pointed out earlier, if there is one thing that will be changed by the Paris attacks and sort of all of the fallout and increased scrutiny on foreign policy, I do think that Ben Carson could maybe be sort of the the biggest loser in all of that just because there is more focus on how much he knows. And, you know, certainly in light of that New York Times article, I think that that was pretty damaging.
0: I mean, I, I can't personally recall kind of another time that you had a mainstream media outlet have quotes like that about a candidate who you know is leading in some national polls. I mean, that that was that was just quite remarkable. Uh, to to be fair to the Carson campaign, the next day it clarified that the person who is offering the most incendiary of those quotes was. Uh, a senior intelligence official was at the end of a long career and that they thought that the new york times had taken advantage of him in obtaining these quotes and at the end of a
1: long day after he took his slippers off
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah you know and the, the the times was very you know said very simply listen we talked to one of carson's aides we said who is his foreign policy advisor they said this guy we called him up he gave us an interview on the record. That's how we did the story. Um, so it's that's 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 an interesting, an interesting little subplot there. Um, you know, I, I think the I you know I, so you know on the Republican side you have I think Ben Carson is, is damaged by this. On, on the Democratic side, I think the you know clearly it's a challenge for Bernie Sanders.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and uh, Bernie Sanders just released a a very lengthy speech today that was mostly dedicated to um, his definition of what democratic socialism means. So, trying to sort of clarify that for anybody that may still have um, confusion, which I think a lot of people still do. Um, but at the end of the speech, he talked about um, he sort of outlined his foreign policy plan a little bit more than he has in the past. Um, and basically what he was saying was that, you know, he, he kind of reiterated some of the things that he said in the debate, which is that he does not, you know, support unilateral action on the ground, does not support the U.S. declaring war, um, believes that we need to work with allies in the region. Um, and also there was a big, big section that I thought was not- notable and that I don't see many other candidates doing it. Um, you know, saying we need to learn from the, the past, basically, and listing all of, you know, the the coups that the US, you know, perpetrated in the fifties and sixties in Iran and, and South South American countries and basically said, you know, we need to own up to the fact that we have a big hand in destabilizing the world and we can't just go around repeating it again and again. So I thought that was interesting.
0: Uh, yeah, I thought it was also interesting with Sanders. This is uh, in terms of the Democratic debate that was held on Saturday. So, you know, one day after the uh, the Paris attacks, um, it's my understanding that CBS, which put on the debate, had wanted all of the candidates, of course, there's only three now, along with Hillary Clinton and Martin O'Malley, had wanted them all to give an opening state that was about the Paris attacks. And Bernie Sanders' campaign negotiated with CBS so that it could be... About the Paris attacks, or about their general plans for the country, and Bernie Sanders, you know, gave two sentences acknowledging the attacks in Paris, and then went back to his, you know, his tried and true, you know, economic inequality message. And you know, time will tell. I mean, that's this is the other thing we, we're talking about. This as if it's a as if it's a huge deal, which it clearly isn't. However, you know, if 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 presidential elections and primaries to have shown us anything in the past. It's that, you know, stories can can come and go.
2: And yeah, absolutely. And one of the one of the things that I, I talked about with um, some of the people for my article is that, you know, in, in in terms of putting this on the scale of other massive attacks that have happened in the past, I mean, you know, one of the people that I talked to pointed out that you know we were already bombing ISIS before this happened, so it doesn't really change. You know, it does change a lot of things, but it doesn't really change. Um, you know, that that fundamental fact. It's not. It's not really on the scale of nine uh, eleven.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so. Well, and it's also not in the United States. Exactly. I mean, that's a, that. I mean, as much as um, there certainly was Republican appetite for you know trying to find some way to put some blame on President Obama, and yet at, at a certain level, you know, I doubt something like that's going to stick as long as the attacks are not actually perpetrated in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, however, you know, you get some sort of, of ISIS-inspired or uh, ISIS-directed attack in the United States, kind of all bets are off at that point. Turn, turn this
1: slightly uh, on its side. So if, if folks right now, it's true that these voters have a, a short memory. This, this storyline could fade. However, ISIS has been a persistent threat. It is a persistent talking point. And so if people are fear, fearful of ISIS, you know, there's something powerful in the politics of fear. And so it makes the candidates on the Republican side that have been urging for buildup of our military force suddenly that much more appealing or as maybe they sounded kind of out there before now they sound soothing Mm -hmm. we you know the fearinas the crews the rubios i want to have the greatest the strongest military in the world those types of things are comforting now because you know if you're facing an isis threat well yeah sure we want more bombs we want more ships we want more planes we want more troops that sounds great Mm-hmm. no matter the cost. So that doesn't help someone like Rand Paul, who has right. generally said, well, if you can't pay for it, then you can't have it.
2: And Rand Paul kind of had, it was it was interesting, because Rand Paul, I thought, kind of had a little bit of a standout moment at the Republican debate uh, uh, last, what was it, last week? Um, I can't keep these debates straight. But um, where he, he made the argument to not get involved in foreign conflicts and you know, kind of asserted himself a little bit more than he has in the past. And it was kind of interesting because uh, I, I think that that at first that was, you know, I'm sure his campaign sort of perceived that as positive and then it quickly went wrong for him.
0: I mean, the other thing is, is that it's very difficult to know how public opinion on this is going to, to move in the next, you know, not in the long term, because in the long term, everything fades, but in the short term, in terms of the next two, three, four weeks, next month or two. Because, you know, you look at the positions that the parties have staked out on this issue, which obviously the Republicans are hawkish. Uh, the Democrats are are calling to, you know, more or less be smarter, you know, not, not more aggressive. Um, you know, and you, and you look at, you know, kind of the stances that someone like President Obama has taken, particularly on in terms of the Syrian refugees, um, blasting the Republicans, uh, you know, basically top to bottom for... for being afraid of people who are, you know, fleeing terror. And clearly he and the White House have made the judgment call that this initial burst of fear is going to fade fairly quickly. Because you wouldn't be making those kinds of statements if you thought that people are going to be, you know, afraid and angry on this subject for, you know, months and months to come. You know, I think there's a certain calculation there that um, Republicans are perhaps going to overreach a little bit uh, in, in the immediate aftermath, and that you know taking that more calm and collected uh, view will will pay off. Of course, you know it's kind of anybody's anybody's guess.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, not to get too
1: dark here, but you know journalists and political analysis can can get kind of dark. And someone said to me this week that we are one dirty bomb away from a Republican president. That if there is some sort of a terrorist attack on U.S. soil, if there's any anything even approaching September 11th between now and the election in the United States of America, then the the country will gravitate to the Republican side of the ticket, and that's that.
0: I mean, I think it depends almost entirely on which what the Republican nominee is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think as, as Ella was just saying, you know, Hillary Clinton was secretary of state, does have some bona fides in the area. She's she's lucky in a sense that she's not secretary of state now. So she's in, in a way able to say, well, what's happening now is not really, you know, not really in, in my bailiwick that that that's happened after I left. Um, so, you know, who's you know, who who's to say? Um, but certainly, you know, terrorism has very, you know, unpredictable consequences for, for, for political, uh, for political parties. Um, I think they were saying, and and it's, it's also interesting too, though, how quickly certain acts of terrorism can fade from memory because I had not realized until I was doing some research for this podcast that there was actually another quite extreme terrorist attack in Europe only about 11 years ago. Because you know everyone, everyone thinks. Of course, goes back to September 11, 2001, but there was the Spain the train, uh, bombings. train bombings, mm-hmm. which killed 190 plus people, and that was in 2004. So you you know, and I mean, I, I mean, obviously, when you say that, people that that you know could rem- can remember that are like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that something like that happened, but. I mean, I don't think of that as having really imprinted on many people's minds as being a, a particularly, you know, huge event. And obviously, it was in Spain. Obviously, it was in Europe. But um, so that that also makes me wonder too, if part of the reason that these attacks in Paris are such a big deal is because we are in the middle of this political season right now. Undoubtedly, yeah. You know that that is actually magnifying um, their effects here. Mm. Um. It's an uplifting podcast. It is. It is. It is what it is. John. Some
1: people would say that we're due for a Republican president, no matter what, because you know Hillary Clinton's got too much baggage and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, what I, well, I wanted to clarify what I what I said before, which is, you know, who really knows? This is that's why they have elections.
0: Well, it's true, and I mean, and, and however, I mean, who
1: the Democratic nominee really, really isn't up that, for that's that's
0: not yeah, that's not probably going to be a mystery.
1: As Ella knows, very, uh, I, can, I can get grumpy about these things. That uh, the Associated Press had a, mm. a story about uh, the superdelegates. Uh, they counted up the superdelegates, and uh, they had an 80%. Superdelegates are among the people who uh, pick the nominee at the, uh, the conventions. And on the Democratic side, they got an 80% return rate of, of people who responded to their query who were you supporting? 97% said
0: Hillary Clinton. So, you know, why hold the election, Ella? <laughs> well, I think I think already the Democrats are probably, you know, putting a few fewer resources into the primary races than the Republicans are. I think there's a lot of democratic attention going to the to the next stage.
1: And when I say election, I mean primary. Yes. It's kind of a disservice to the primary that, you know, what what would happen here. Of, of New Hampshire's eight superdelegates, six said that they support Hillary. The seventh was Martha Fuller Clark, who said, uh, out of respect for the Democratic process, I'm not saying. And then the eighth was Ray Buckley, who is the chair of the New Hampshire Demo- Democratic Party and, and can't say. Yeah. But I don't think it's a secret that he's uh, not back in Bernie this time
2: around. Well, he did show up with uh, with Bernie to his filing to make sure that that uh, his his uh, filing as a Democrat was accepted by the Secretary of State's office. So.
0: That's right. Now that that's there's going to be that hearing, right? For, yeah. In terms of appeals for from Canada. So I, I actually, it's
2: next Tuesday, and I actually got a call from Carmen Elliott, the Pennsylvania man who is challenging Senator Ted Cruz on the basis of his Canadian. Uh, wait, not wait, No wait, longer wait, citizenship wait, I have to
1: interrupt Did you reach out to Carmen? Did Carmen just find
2: you? At Carmen a... just found me
1: Wow <laughs> You arrived
2: <laughs> No I Thank God I've finally gotten to this point <laughs> um, Yeah so Carmen Elliott is a man from I think Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania And he is challenging Senator Ted Cruz um, his, his New Hampshire filing On the basis of the fact that Senator Cruz was born in Canada, um, and it's it's sort of I mean it it is to be completely fair it is kind of a murky issue, um, but but Ted Cruz did uh, he renounced his Canadian citizenship I believe last year, um, but there is I mean the the Supreme Court has never really kind of. Totally decided that issue um, of you know if you're born outside of the United States if you can if you can run for, for office. But I mean, there's there's you know a lot of people like John McCain was technically born at a, mm-hmm. a naval base in Panama, and he was he was challenged by Carmen Elliott um, back in 2008. And uh, so you know so there are certainly people that have not that are have not been born inside the United States proper that have still been able to run for elected office. Um, but the, uh, New Hampshire's ballot law commission is going to take up, um, Mr. Elliott's challenge. He, he actually, it was sort of unclear whether or not he was going to be able to, uh, to sort of file it and defend it because he's, he's not a New Hampshire resident, but he, uh, he linked up with a New Hampshire resident. I believe a man from Concord named Christopher Booth, who feels the same way. So that is one of the things that's going to be considered. Have you talked to Mr. Booth? I have not. No, no. Put that on your to-do list. Yes. Um, So there's that. And then um, Bernie Sanders is being challenged by a man named Andy Martin who is running in the Republican race. He's one of the lesser known candidates. (laughs) I didn't know about him until he uh, filed to challenge uh, Bernie Sanders, but he's doing it on the basis that... Bernie Sanders is uh, an independent senator from Vermont and who has filed as a Democrat um, to run for president. So he is not happy with, with that. Although he did say um, he, he, he thinks Bernie Sanders is an entertaining man, but he just doesn't think that uh, he should be on the ballot. Um, I did some digging on uh, on Andy Martin last week and found out that he uh, is also the executive director of www.boycotthawaii.com. Which uh, is is a birther thing ah, for, for Obama. But it's good. it's asking people to boycott Hawaii's tourism and businesses until the the uh, state government of Hawaii releases all of the documents pertaining to President are, are Obama's.
0: There are more?
2: <laughs> I didn't realize there were My more. My
0: goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, although it, it should also be added here that from what I have read about the New Hampshire Ballot Law Commission, it is not generally eager to overturn um, Candidates filings. It it tends to Mm -hmm. tends to rule in favor of how the candidates define themselves.
2: Yeah I don't think it's going to be a hugely either issue is going to be hugely contentious But I do think it will be interesting. Um, They have some some kind of interesting questions before them So it should should promise to be a an entertaining morning.
0: Well, we look forward to that and so John as I often ask you at this time in our podcasts do you have anything else?
1: Well there's always other stuff but um, I I went to a workshop today Okay. Apropos of nothing <laughs> uh, and I just, um, so I met um, John King from CNN today and uh, we were all talking about the primary and politics and he was a real swell guy. Uh, I I was a little little jaded about this, uh, going and talking about just all kinds of stuff. You know, it didn't seem necessarily focused. But it, well, I guess my concern was sometimes the crowd, if there is no crowd, can be you know can make these panel discussions really painful. But uh, you were
0: on the panel. We should we should note. No, I was cowering the corner. Um, <laughs> At least in the listing I read, you were listed as being on the panel. But... I was.
1: Uh, but you know, So despite my fears, my hesitation, there were uh, college kids there, high school kids from Londonderry, Derry, um, Franklin Pierce University was there. It was, it was a really good crowd and it was a pretty, pretty good discussion. So it was, it was fun.
0: So, the primary has a future
1: uh well, I didn't say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay now, in uh no i I think uh our first nation status is is strong,
0: okay
1: well, what else, what do you got, Ella?
0: I don't know, I prefer to well, ask you John because uh, no, it's no. more entertaining to have you have you be unprepared, so
1: <laughs> yes, uh well, we we're gonna talk, you know. Bobby Jindal dropped yes, out. Bobby That's Jindal running. did we, we drop out. A, we had a brief you know, moment of silence for Rick Perry. Why not Bobby?
0: Yep. Well, Bobby Jindal is, is running no more, although not that we even really saw him in New Hampshire. He ran a very Iowa centric campaign. Uh, one of a, of a few, actually, Republican uh, candidates that wanted to run an Iowa centric campaign. That just did not take off. Mm -hmm. I think Scott Walker tried tried that, Rick Perry tried that. Um, In in all of these cases, it did not catch fire. So, uh,
1: any uh, prediction on who's next, Clay? I have Um, a prediction. Oh.
2: Um, well, I don't know. There, there could certainly, because the Republican field is, is still so crowded. So I, I still think that, that Lindsey Graham is going to hang on for a little bit longer. He's, he and John McCain are back campaigning in the state right now. Um, there who, are Lindsey
0: Graham ads up with uh, are, John McCain in them.
2: Yes. Um, who knows about George Pataki, I mean.
1: Which, when, in your day-in-the-life story, Ella, of, of Lindsey Graham, when he was campaigning with John McCain all day, I believe you coined the term, the ultimate bromance.
2: I yes, guess. I did. Mm-hmm. Yes, was, and I stand by that.
1: Well, I, I it, it painted, uh, you know, the, these guys, they they are very, very, um, they campaign well together. They, they see eye to eye on a lot of issues, and as we've talked about many times here, John McCain is the... the Primary hero, not once but twice.
2: Yes, but, but but sometimes to Lindsey Graham's detriment when he campaigns with John McCain, people want to talk to John McCain more than they want to talk to him. Right.
0: Really, they just want John McCain to run again,
2: um, but I'm guessing.
0: Um, my, my pick for the next Republican candidate to drop out would be someone that we, again, would also be just be someone that we haven't seen here in New Hampshire. I'm thinking like Mike Huckabee, you know, someone along those lines, maybe right. Santorum. Although I think you know, since Oren was has been, was here relatively recently, said he was in it to win it. So
2: yes, he did um, file. So,
0: but I mean, I think what you tend to see with these guys is they don't drop out because they lose the will to run. They drop out because they don't have money. Right. And and so I mean, so it's very difficult to say sometimes.
2: And there was a story. Buzzfeed had a story today that I, that was uh, interesting about Martin O'Malley on the Democratic side. That he is, uh, he his campaign. I don't know if they have actually decided to do this yet, but that they're strongly considering taking public funding, so public uh, dollars to match. Um, which uh, they talked to John Edwards, former campaign manager, who said, we did that back in 2008 and it was a death sentence to our campaign. So basically, you the two choices are you either get out of the race or you accept public funding and then your campaign fizzles out a couple weeks later. But he's, it sounds like at this point O'Malley is trying to, he's, he's very low on cash um, in, in comparison to uh, the other Democratic Contenders, and he is just sort of trying to eke out until the uh, Iowa caucuses and New Hampshire primary.
1: has Buzzfeed, bite your tongue, Buzzfeed. We had a story today in our (laughs) newspaper in which uh, the O'Malley campaign tried to play him as the second coming of Gary Hart, a man who is going to still has a chance to win the hearts and minds of New Hampshire voters.
0: I don't think Gary Hart still has the chance to win the hearts and minds of New Hampshire voters. Did
1: did I did I mess that up?
0: Oh no, I'm just, I'm just making. I'm just being ridiculous. Okay. No, I th- I think uh, yeah, I think the time might have passed. At least for Gary Hart. Maybe not Martin O'Malley. Maybe not. We'll see.
2: It remains to be seen. And uh,
0: speaking of money, not not to just keep going.
1: You have some for me. Uh, I don't. But uh, in in reporting bobby jindal's campaign's demise we did double check with the secretary of state's office to see if jindal had paid to be on the ballot and file for to run for president in new hampshire and he had and so we had to call back just to verify and ask bill gardner did you cash the check and they had so new hampshire is one thousand dollars richer
0: at bobby jindal's expense well, you know, it also gives voters the option to cast their ballots for Bobby Jindal it does. if they so desire um, in February or January or whenever it is that Bill Gardner decides to do this. He hasn't actually set a date, right? I mean, this is still up in the air. There is no
1: official date, I mean, right. but it's uh, it's widely
0: suspected. I think February seventh is the day. I think so. Well, we'll see. Unless someone tries to tries to. To jump in before that, at which point then we.
1: But wait. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. You can finish your thought. No, no, no. I
0: didn't really have any other thought. Go, go ahead.
1: Ella said that she had a prediction, and she said that Lindsey Graham was going to stick around. So we didn't actually hear the prediction. Oh, my He's prediction was out.
2: that was that Martin O'Malley was going to drop out. But
1: what about on the Republican side? Do you have
2: one? Um, I always. <laughs> I always I used to forget that George Pataki was running, and now I forget that Mike Huckabee and Rick Santorum were running. So any of those three. <laughs>
0: well, you know, I mean, as, as I think as I've I've said a, to a, a few times, you know, it's it's very interesting when you get into the whole you know who stays in who who doesn't because it really just comes down to cash management, you know, and and if people are willing to like swallow their egos and campaign on a shoestring, there's no reason that a lot of these guys have to drop out at all, but you know, most people don't actually want to just, you know, be in a, in a, in a small hotel room and driving a rental car around themselves with one aid, mm-hmm. you know, they want to actually have an, an operation and that's, that's difficult to have. Right. You know, especially with someone like Martin O'Malley, who really has tried very hard to have a legitimate campaign infrastructure in place in New Hampshire. And, uh, and really, anyone has one, but you know, what was it? Our story said that he had less than a million dollars on hand as of the end of September, like $805,000. So Remember that, by the way, it's in the quiz this week. So, okay. Well, we have, we have uh, rattled on long enough, I think. So John, thank you. Thank you, Clay. And
2: Ella, thank you. Thank you, Clay.
0: You can listen to past episodes of this series and hear future ones by subscribing through iTunes or Stitcher. We'll see you all next week. Take care.